Hello, this is Charles Mallet with an interview for UK Column, and there will be notes to accompany this interview at ukcolumn.org. Today, I'm very pleased to be in discussion with Marianne Penny and Michelle Turner, who are going to have a lot to say about the relationship between food and community. So to that end, Marianne and Michelle, welcome to UK Column and thank you very much for joining me. Let's start with a bit of a general scene setting. Tell me please what it is that you are doing and how you've come to be doing it. Okay, so this time last year, I closed down my small vegetable box scheme, um, basically because every every relaxation of the lockdown rules, um, more and more customers went back to their old buying habits and it was no longer, longer viable. But I had a core of my customers that wanted to keep buying the organic produce that I was accessing. So sort of in a bit of desperation, I suppose, I said, well, that there is a methodology that I'm aware of um, and it's basically we have to come together and be able to sell and everything that I can buy, which meant, um, let's say we wanted carrots, onions and celery. Well, we had to be able to buy whole boxes or nets to be able to make it viable. So being a non-techie but had seen this thing called Google Docs, which is an Excel spreadsheet, basically, um, I put it out to the group and said, let's have a go. So I did a whole list of fruit and vegetables that I thought we might like and shared it with the group. And I asked them, wherever possible, to put in a minimum and a maximum amount of something they wanted. And in two or three days, we collated an order, which put in, and everything came and was sold. And that was how it started. We had 16 people that came together to buy a pallet load of fresh fruit and vegetables. Um, that very quickly grew to include eggs and dairy. And um, afterwards, it in increased to things like pasta and tins and even meat. Um, however, um, should we just say a little tweet went out that changed the whole paradigm for us. And we realized that there was a huge demand uh, for other people to do this. So in the ensuing months, we've been looking at how to actually put in the systems to make that possible. And Michelle uh, was one of our early pilots for a second group. And I've actually got Tanya here as well, who is from a third group. And currently, um, I've got four, if not five groups working and there are another three groups that are, are no longer, actually four groups that are no longer part of our particular system. So we've been in a big, big learning curve. Um, and just at the moment, as we do this, we are still working on the systems and the intellectual property, and we're gaining a phenomenal team of people to be able to roll this out um, initially in the Southeast, but we're looking to collaborate with other people doing similar things uh, around the country. The two of you, had you known each other prior to doing this? You talk about the group. Can you just go back a bit and describe how it is that you came to be part of or at least form a group in the first place? And how did that connection come about? Okay, the original group formation was with a group of my customers. Um, then Tanya knew about what I was doing. 
because we, we go back quite some way. And she introduced me to Michelle and the group here near Milton Keynes. Um, and they, they were meeting bi-weekly because at the moment we're doing bi-weekly cycles for each and every hub except this one. And we are just trialing a weekly order. And I know it looks quiet here at the moment. Um, that's because of the interview. Otherwise, we wouldn't. We'd be otherwise quite busy. Part of the group here um, was uh, over the Christmas and uh, winter time. Um, we were just talking about how we would like to evolve and the sort of things that we wanted to have access to. And one of them was most definitely um, organic food and quality um, food that we could access as a community. And it was as a result of those conversations uh, that uh, speaking to Tanya, who is somebody I've known for a very long time, and then she introduced me to Marianne, and uh, we moved forward very quickly um, into this space to, uh, to, yeah, to, to create an environment where the access to the food um, and working together uh, it, it started uh, almost overnight. Yes, <laughs> organically, almost overnight. Your sort of personal and professional backgrounds, is this an extension of that or is this a, a very much a, a change of track for either of you? What What's led you, what, what's sort of driven you to, to do this? I've been doing this one way or another for probably two decades. Um, well over 20 years ago, I was forced to learn about health naturally um and that is the very very short story but that learning led me into the understanding that our health is intimately connected with that of our environment both the inner and outer and as a result you could say at the time we were hobby farming and um we realized that the only way we were going to be able to get the internal environment right was through growing our own food because we knew or I knew then that certainly the food chain could not be trusted you know you have to bear in mind there is a significant tie-up between the agrochemical companies and the big pharmaceutical companies so as we get less and less nutrition in the food chain which by the way significantly degrades the environment you know you have to bear in mind one snippet of data for every half ton of food we collectively eat we lose a, top, a ton of topsoil. You know, that is a phenomenal piece of information um, that doesn't even scratch the surface on the biodiversity you lose through the amount of chemical that is put on through the ploughing, through the tillage. Um, so this is a whole very deeply integrated and very holistic subject. Um, so we, we started farming, what we called holistically, um, 20 years ago, we, we had a few pigs, a few chickens. Um, we were learning about how to nourish the soil. And more and more and more, we got down what people now talk about rabbit holes. Um, and we were producing phenomenal food. I was doing a few markets and people would say to me, you know, your food is absolutely phenomenal. We even had a farm shop for a short while and absolutely stunned people with the, the flavor of what we were doing. So... All of that vindicated that we were on the right track. And then in 2014, I was working with a couple of change facilitators because they had read my concept of what we needed to do to change the food chain. 
and um, they knew food was the cornerstone which was holding us back. And actually, food is considerably overlooked by just about every sector, be it politicians, business people, communities, you name it, food is just so ignored. It's there, it's taken for granted. But it is the cornerstone of our health. Um, so in 2014, with that working couple, we ended up, to my amazement, uh, they asked me, would I apply to something called the Savory Institute, which are at the corner, where they're one of the cornerstones of regenerative farming. And they said, would I apply to the Savory Institute? So I sort of said, only with your help, and they did. And we, we were accepted as a hub for the UK, um, and we were incredibly fortunate to be in cohorts such as Michigan State University, and an absolute hero of the regenerative movement is Will Harris in White Oak Pastures in Georgia. Um, and the learnings that have come from that, most notably from their founder, Alan Savory, not actually so much his grazing methodology, which I can tell you works phenomenally um, and sequesters carbon and uh, regenerates biodiversity phenomenally. It was his insights in leadership, which, to be honest, was the most powerful thing for me. And that insight distilled down is basically all change comes from us at the grassroots. So when I had the community come together, we don't want to lose your food, um, I said, let's have a go at this. So that's how we got from basically being, uh, having the need to look into holistic health into where we are today. Michelle, I'd like to give you the chance to just talk a bit about your, your sort of pathway into this as well. Is that, is that a sort of similar experience for you or not? No, quite different. <laughs> um, I have had an interest in, in food, particularly organic food and holistic health all my life um, and well-being. And that's something that's just followed me through. Um, and um, a lot of my background has been quite, has changed quite a lot over the over the years. And I've sort of followed my my heart and my sort of sense of things. And so I've had this interest for sure. But uh, in terms of my actual business and career, I've, I've run a number of small businesses. Um, I've been involved with natural healthcare products before. Um, and But in more recent times, been very involved with business networking. And um, so have been part of creating and networking with an awful lot of people. But predominantly, it's been around how um, how we live and how we uh, how how we approach our lives and make the choices that we do, and how we're finding more and more and more that even those of us that are making what we feel to be good and healthy choices, the access to the food is becoming more and more limited, and the also the med- medical aspect of that means that we're being compromised a lot. And in order for us to uh, increase our health and our well-being, we've got to take much more, um, I say, control or autonomy over our choices. And so that's been, that in itself has been a, a big interest for me. And so um, I actually changed my whole career very um, recently, in the well, last five or six years. Um, and I'm now a, a full-time artist after 30 years gap. So 
this um, sort of has segued in a very unusual way in that it's about the energy and the um, enjoyment of our life and what we can put into that and what we get out of community, how we work together, how we establish the, um, the way of being that supports not only ourselves, but the whole integrity of a process, for example, the farming. I've always personally looked looked out for um, farmers that will uh, will relate to um, us um, <laughs> as consumers. And I understand fully that that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, so getting access to food that you know, you absolutely know, has been created in a, in a way that is um, organic, and I use that word loosely because it doesn't necessarily have to have that organic um, certification, but also that the husbandry of the animals is the way that I would like to see. And the the way that the land is used and kept is in line with nature as opposed to um, the conflict with nature that we've seen over these last uh, decades or even centuries. So um, in terms of my actual work, this has not been my focus other than in, in well-being. It's been really exciting, to be honest, to get involved with this and to see some of the things that I've been very passionate about um, come together through, uh, through being involved with, with Marianne and with, with this organisation. Let's go back a, a tiny bit. Um, we talk, you've mentioned the, the agricultural, the sort of the agrochemical industry and the pharmaceutical industry, and you gave a very interesting statistic about topsoil. Marianne, when we spoke on the telephone a little while ago, you used the word destructive in relation to the production of food. And I think for the enormous majority of people watching and listening, it would be fascinating to go into more detail on that and just describe, if you will, the way in which the prevalent system of food production does, in fact, uh, really work to the detriment of the environment and nature. Could you just sort of articulate that a bit further in order that we can build from there on what you are doing? Okay, well, I'm going to speak about something that many people will think is um, controversial, and that is of carbon dioxide. Now, carbon is part of our natural cycle, but the plough is incredibly dangerous. Um, one of the professors, professors from MSU actually said they'd rather use Roundup and no-till than actually use the plough. And this was a man that knew how dangerous Roundup was. So, you know, I don't know how many of, of your viewers actually appreciate how bad glyphosate is, but it's very, very dangerous. So just put, I just put that in context that the plough is even more dangerous for the environment than glyphosate. Um, what I will also say, I would like to cast everyone's mind back, everyone that was driving back in the 80s. Um, in the summer, virtually every day, I was having to wash my windscreen from bug splat. I can now go all summer without having to wash my car windscreen. Now, just because we don't see the insects, it doesn't mean to say they are insignificant. In fact, they are a very, very important part of our whole ecosystem. 
If you take the ecosystem processes, and a very, very good example of this is Yellowstone Park and the wolves. Where they, where they and we across the board have removed wolves from our ecosystem, we are seeing damage. In fact, whenever we interfere with our ecosystem, one way or another, we damage it. And it's only when we see a problem that we start to realize that, hang on a minute, what's going on? And when you go deep enough, the answer is always man. Man came in, did something with a short-term view without understanding the long-term unintended consequences. And in that respect, modern farming methods, with its tillage, but moreover, its chemical inputs and the devastation it causes on the biodiversity across the board, is leading us, humans, not the earth because she will pain, but it is leading us to the true existential, existential crisis that we're up against. And that is biodiversity loss. There is not a scientist in the world that has argued that fact. It is not controversial. It is well known, but it has been ignored. Because in my opinion, it is within our power to reverse it. And through the very, very simple fact of choosing how we eat and what we eat can reverse the biodiversity issue and simultaneously sequester carbon back where it needs to into the soil. Because we have lost top topsoil, we've lost nutrition. I mean, the whole ecosystem is out of whack 100% because of our decision making. I know that uh, the words glyphosate and ploughing will have struck a bell with, with many people watching and listening. Just describe, please, and in fact, particularly in light of the comments by Therese Coffey the other day and the, the sort of decision made in Europe about use of glyphosate and how DEFRA will continue to protect farmers' use of glyphosate. So could you just describe to people what it is that glyphosate's used for and what your view of that is, but also how specifically how that compares with ploughing. What is it that ploughing does in relation to use of glyphosate and how do they compare? Okay, so glyphosate was originally patented as an antibiotic. So just bear that in mind. It's, it subsequently turned its use. Now you've got to bear in mind, it's been a very long time since I have, ever used it and that was only in a small very small way um, my long-term partner in this was chemically sensitive when we first got together so we had to be very careful on what we were doing but yes so glyphosate is an antibiotic um, it is well known though for its ability to kill plants kill herbs uh, hence the term herbicide um, there is much literature out there and I'm not going to go down there because it is a whole topic. But that's how it works. It works by destroying, um, destroying plants across the board, which then allows um, basically a blank slate for farmers to go through and drill into the, the soil, whatever they want, with relatively little competition. That's what that's all about. Now, I know people are very concerned about Roundup Ready wheat. To my knowledge, and you have to bear in mind, I do not follow um, the agrochemical companies and their farming practices. Um, there isn't such thing as Roundup Ready Wheat in this country yet. That doesn't mean to say it doesn't get imported in flour and wheat-based products. Um, 
So that, yeah. The other side of the equation is soil. It is a whole ecosystem of itself. Everything from bacteria, mycorrhizal fungi, nematodes, all sorts of um, life in different realms in the soil. And a plough comes along and basically wipes that asunder. All the relationships and the symbiosis that have gone on in the soil um, for millennia, a plough breaks apart, specifically the mycorrhizal fungi, which they, they say can actually go for miles. Once you break that up, you break up the whole, uh, what they call dynamics within the soil. And then you add on to that chemicals, which are often thrown um, of the ploughing. It's just a cocktail of devastation that because we're not a microbe within the soil, we don't see. We just see these beautiful lawns appearing of wheat or barley or rapeseed or maize. It's a monoculture of destruction. Now, what I will say, the most insalient point, if people want to see what's going on, if you're in the countryside, just drive around. If you take the wheat, the barley, the rape out of the equation, you take out of the equation also the fields full of sheep or cattle that are grazing without restriction, all of that is very difficult to see as food because I won't eat um, monoculture wheat anymore. There are, te not, not technologies, it actually goes the other way now. You know, there are ancient grains which can be um, sown without tillage at all. Uh, they come from a time and diversity of their own genome that our bodies can actually absorb, and we don't have the issues of gluten intolerance. They're actually far more nutritional to us. And from a farm perspective, you can grow them without, literally without any input other than the sowing of it and the harvesting of it. Um, you know, they'll then, the farmers will turn around and say, oh yes, but you only get quarter of the yield. But that's because farmers have been told to produce the yield, never actually looking at that actual uh, profit per acre. When you compare someone producing this old-fashioned heritage wheat, for example, versus a modern, modern farm producing four, four and a half, even five tons of wheat to the acre, versus probably the best ancient grain at below a ton an acre, but that ton of grain is really valuable to us. It is nutrient dense. It's grown by people that care. And where that is grown, you're having the biodiversity coming back. You're getting people coming back into the equation that want to, to mill the grain. They want to bake with the grain. They want to sell the produce. And all of it is good for us. It's a wealth of knowledge that you bring to the conversation, to the discussion, and obviously to the people that you deal with. Clearly, a large part of the issue is communicating this message to people. Michelle, you talked about building networks and, and so on. How, over the time that you've been working in conjunction with one another, have you found communicating with the public, with farmers, with people in the, in the, the sort of the agricultural domain? And what are the challenges in doing so? 
initially, we, we have to remember that food is uh, fundamental to all of us. So it's, it's a relatively easy starting point. Um, one of the issues that we do have, of course, is comfort and the ability to get access to, to food relatively easily, um, but not access to quality. What, what seems to happen, though, is once we start talking and, and actually showing people, I'm doing this because we have got some of our food here, and showing people food um, that is of far better quality than they may have experienced before. And um, when we start to actually eat that food and talk while we're together looking at that food and feeling it and smelling it and tasting it, it all brings it all together. It's interesting that the smile, boy, <laughs> cabbage right there. The smiles on people's faces um, really comes comes into its own. There is an energy around food um, and a, an energy and a frequency. I don't know. I don't want to use those sort of wishy-washy words. Perhaps for some some people who aren't really into that sort of way of being, but we all know how fantastic it, fantastic it is when you're sitting together having good food. Well, especially when it's been home cooked. And, uh, I, you know, this idea of us as a community, it becomes really natural when you're around people and around food because those conversations start to happen. That opens a lot more doors. Um, and recently, uh, just, uh, I have to say, uh, that I've been, <laughs> I've been a vegetarian or pes I'm a pesky vegetarian. So, um, all my life, pretty much. Uh, although I've been around meat, I don't have any issues around meat. I'm not, um, I'm not restricted in that way. Mm -hmm. But what I find is that the amount of um, colours and variety that we get access to through this way of being, it's huge. It, we don't see most of these things mm -hmm. in the supermarket. So there's that part, um, that element that brings people together. And I'm We've had people in our in our small community here where um, they've been, well, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to get involved with the picking and the packing. Um, and then they suddenly do because when they're here and they see and they smell the food, it makes a really, really big difference. And all of a sudden they do want to get involved because now they're seeing the food. They're starting to go back to the root of what food is all about. Um, and then they're sharing sharing it and talking about it and having actually a really good time. And that in itself has been um, a real eye-opener. Eye and what it then does, though, is it creates the links. What I've done here, um, and in fact, my son was with me, and uh, we've been looking at different local um, farms and farmers that can support here locally. We completely understand that it's not necessarily possible for us to get our food locally. It might sound like a fantastic idea in one way, but the reality is very different. And we're also looking for those farm, farms and farmers and suppliers and growers, um, who can, who relate to just as Marianne has just described and understand how to produce food that is uh, going to support the whole of the biodiversity and our health and our well-being and them themselves. Do you want to add in? No, not at all. I mean, the one thing um, that to me is absolutely vital, this country imports about 50% of its food. Most of that is non-organic. Mm. So we're talking about 
I don't know what the stats is for organic food, but let's assume it's about 5% of the market. It means 95% of the food eaten by the people in this country is actually from degenerative agriculture. But worse than that is the, the few, there are very few small growers. So we're in the Thames Valley, and I did a study um, back in the summer uh, in my small market town of Wallingford. I did a five-kilometer radius about around us, and I estimate we feed between 1% and 2% of the people. And I believe that can be replicated through the whole of the Thames Valley, and I'm not even going to touch on London. Um, the other side of that equation is if we work regeneratively and if we were to stimulate a new rural economy based on food, farming and rural production, because that isn't just food, that's other things that we could produce, such as uh, fibre. We could be doing wool, a lot more wool, linen, for example. I mean, the wood and the linen would have been behind our entire backbone of our history. Um, so we could go on and do that, but we need to stimulate. I worked out something like 10,000 new small growers to support a local economy based around food again. Um, and I even worked out around the same time that over the past few years, if every family represented at a march or a demonstration spent half of their food budget on food, we would actually change the food economy in this country by a hundred million pounds a week whilst stimulating the biodiversity, stimulating the economy, stimulating the community. I mean, it's a win, win, win. So to me, it's incredibly empowering to say we are coming together at a grassroots level to buy food often from way away from where we are just because we know we can't buy it, but in the hopes that a year down the road, we can put the word out locally that we have the land, we can now pay people to grow locally. That's the bottom line. We're going to create an environment for a lot of new growers to move into. We're also supporting farmers to drop out of the, um, the subsidiary subsidizing can't yes. get my teeth in subsidies yes that one <laughs> and what we're also noting is you know which is what we've done here is when we start communicating with the farmers in the first instance they're not necessarily well there's a couple of things one is they're not necessarily going to want to talk to somebody who doesn't they believe understand what they're dealing with so what we have is we have all of Marianne's knowledge all of her understanding and she can speak farmer so that really really helps with the relationships um it also is because we're very much more about community and supporting each other it's not about a group of people coming in and saying right well we want um i don't know 100 liters of your milk uh, and we don't we're not we're working with the farmers and saying we actually have a supply here if that's something that you would like and you're able to do is to support us in our needs but we also want to support you too so we'll work with you we don't need to demand what we want we want to make sure that this is even for everybody what we're also finding is that when the farmers come into the community and actually start to talk to the, the consumers i don't even like to call them us 
consumers. It's very, very community. different. The community. community. When they come in, um, then both the community and the farmers start to join in and understand what the environment is. Because a lot of farmers, we know how um, how depleted they are emotionally, um, just financially. financially, most definitely. And, and also because they've been demanded upon by legislation, by the way that the whole farming industry has been put together. And what we're saying is we want you, as in the farmer, to do what's right for you and supportive of all aspects of the, the system. And then to also enjoy the, the community and the fact that we're actually really um, recognizing what farmers are going through. And we have had, we had a lovely local farmer come here. Um, as, as I was mentioning earlier, my son and I went on a bit of a recce around some of the local farms and um, we went over to speak to the farm, the farmer. They have a very small farm shop. And, and at that point, they didn't know who we were. And they probably were approached by a number of different groups or had been. And we had the opportunity to have a big, bit of a chat and look at what they, they were producing and asked if they were able to support us at all. And they were very honest and said they could up to a degree, but not completely because they already have enough people buying from them and they don't. So their demand um, or their supply couldn't reach the, the current demand. And uh, what we were able to say was understand that. And what we want to do, though, is to bring you into the community and for you to explain that to our community. So the community understands the parameters that farmers are up against. But as a result of that, um, Tom came in and had a really fantastic session here um, and just was just talking very openly. Um, about his scenario, how he got to be working in a more regenerative way from his own personal experiences, and um, why he chose to change the whole way of farming that he had been undertaking for many, many years. And what it then did was it brought the group together. And uh, from that, we now have some a most amazing, beautiful eggs. I've never experienced eggs um, to that level of um, quality. And we know exactly how those eggs are farmed. And we then have that relationship with the farmer who knows that we're here and also is willing to share with us when he's got a glut of um of produce or whether he's where his connections are and as a result we we've had other connections for various um, types of meat and on all sorts of things that come in that have come out of the relationship that we're building rather than going in and demanding or saying we need this it, let's let's work together let's see what we can do for you and one of the things that really struck me when um, when Tom came into the building and, and was part of the community, was he suddenly found, he, it was almost um, like his shoulders literally dropped and he relaxed because he felt he was in a place where he could share his own values. And we recognized those values and we were reflecting them back. So there was a much more synergist, synergistic uh, relationship and a synergistic feeling and energy about how we work.
And that can only be good. It can only be good. Um, and a friend of mine uh, mentioned the other day a word that I think is really, really important in all of this. And that's patient. Is that once we start to work with food and with farmers and with the suppliers and with each other, we learn patience. And that means that if those farms that we're working with cannot supply within the, what we're, you know, the current need, that doesn't mean we just walk away from them. It just means that we're patient. And understand. And understand. And we work together. And in that time, there may be another farmer or another supplier that can maybe fill that, that gap, but maybe not. And we just wait and we work with what we've got. Isn't that the way that farming and food was all about? Which, which actually brings us really well back into where we're at presently. We're trying to say trying. We are putting the systems in place that will link us up. We've we've got an incredible opportunity with a chap doing logistics. You know, he he in 2020 could see a problem and he went to the government and said, "Look, we can help put together a decentralised democratised system." And they were not interested. So he's got those systems about to come online for us. What we want to try and do is find people that would like to work with us, not just at the community level, but at the management level, because we're still a very small group um, with far more <laughs> jobs ahead of us than we actually have the time for. Um, so whilst we have been concentrating on the community side of this, we know there is a huge interest in what we're doing because we are set up, set up as a not-for-profit, specifically to be able to put all the money we do make, hopefully one day, <laughs> back into the farm and farming community to support new infrastructure, to support new farms, farmers, maybe even support land, because this needs to be in public hands again. And so we're putting that in place. Um, what have we missed? Well, the, the thing that um, I think is important within that, exactly what you said, is that the farmers then take back the autonomy of their network. Because what we're finding is farmers, um, particularly those who want to go into um, or are working regeneratively, are feeling very, very much out on a limb. Yes, they are totally isolated. They feel yeah. very much alone. And that's one thing we are doing more and more is reconnecting the farmers within themselves because there is a huge knowledge base out there but it's a case of we all find well actually i tried that that worked i didn't you know i tried that that didn't work and then you'd work out why so that reconnection is really important um totally really important but how, what we've missed is the fact that we food for change need um people that have the time to help us, we would like to put together a retail arm, which again, we're still working on the systems. So we're needing someone that could really help us with that. Um, and someone has suggested to us, we consider doing this as a franchise because at the end of the day, the community side of this is made possible by individuals like Michelle, who can see the potential and have the time and the opportunity and they're actually very few and far between, although we also have Tanya here. And we've also got Bev and, Bev and Juliana up in Greenwich, and we've got Jess down in Worthing. Um, but these are very few and far between. 
So we're looking at all models to help us get the product out there so that we can build the network because it's only with resources that we can build that network that will endure. And it's also very important right now, um, as more and more people are, are noting, that the supermarket experience isn't the best one. It's not a good one. Um, and it's getting more and more uh, uncomfortable. And also there's a lacking in the variety of food and, and what we want that brings us health. So if we can establish, um, if we can establish this in, uh, in a way that supports all parties, then uh, right now is the time to do it because we, you know, we, we can't wait. We can't wait. We have to step up ourselves. We have to do this ourselves. And can I just bring into the equation? Um, Arjuada V came, came through about six weeks ago when I had a message come through from actually a friend and farmer in Shropshire who for no reason, no, no business reason, is in trouble financially. And when I got in touch, uh, I knew we, we as a network were looking to buy good quality beef. And I believe Badinsward up in Shropshire produced not just some of the best beef, they certainly produce some of the best and ethical milk in the country. And we were very fortunate that one of our members, uh, I put a call out, we need to raise a certain amount of money. And we did. In very short order, we were able to send them money they needed to get them over the next hurdle. You know, we haven't helped them rescue the farm, but we certainly have helped extend um, the time they needed. And that was a really phenomenal example of the network that we were growing, are growing. Mm -hmm. um, so we've got an incredible product for the group from an incredible farmer that needed help. And that is exactly the reason we're doing this. You know, listening to what you say, first of all, about your connection with Tom and him, you know, changing the way that he's doing things, but also the reference you made to supermarkets, which, you know, people will definitely have a view on. And I don't think any viewer or listener would be at all surprised to learn that government turned down a suggestion that could help the industry. There's been an item on UK Column News recently about the uh, the petition to make changes to the groceries supply code of practice, essentially to, to completely sort of, you know, reinvent the relationship between supermarkets and farmers, although, of course, terribly unlikely to happen in any meaningfully positive sense. So it's clear from what you say, there's an awful lot of enthusiasm on the demand side and people willing to, to get involved, you know, assist you with what you're doing. Uh, it, it's well known, of course, that the, the average age of farmers is, I think, now around 60 years old. A lot of people have been, you know, doing the same thing in the same way their whole life. And of course, the nature of farming changed so drastically in the aftermath of the Second World War with the you know, introduction of so many chemicals and all the rest of it. It's going to be very hard for people to break out of that. So I understand exactly what you're saying. But I suppose farmers really, even if they're being, in a sense, abused by the supermarkets they deal with, am, am I right to imagine that they still need an awful lot of convincing to change what it is that, that they do? And how do you see, 
I suppose particularly demographically, I mean, I, I, you know, it doesn't really make much difference what age the people that you have had success with are. But do you, do you think that you're likely to have greater success with a particular age group? Or is there any, you know, characteristic that it makes a farmer more likely to adopt such a system? I have found through the conversations I've had, um, both on farm and um, predominantly at uh, a national conference that's held in Hertfordshire every year called Groundswell, through the conversations I've had there, it's, it's actually more people coming from outside the industry that really see this need and get it. Um, farmers are very slow. I mean, it comes back to the whole comfort thing. You know, if you can get by by doing it, you know, the old saying is don't fix what ain't broke. That is very much the, the philosophy. But as more and more farmers start doing this, their neighbours will be looking over their hedge and their fence, thinking, hang on a minute, what's happening there? And slowly it will, you know, and it is growing. I mean, when we look at how fast groundswell grew, just in interest, which is a no-till grass-reared livestock event. You know, I think that in, in 10 years, I, and I forget the numbers, but they're probably up to about 5,000. In fact, I think it's way beyond that now. But they've, yeah, the growth of their conference has been phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. So there is hope and it is catching on. We've talked quite a lot about the sort of um, the challenges and the, and the slightly doom and gloom nature of, of how things are being done badly. You've talked or at least made a number of references to regenerative farming. Just describe to the audience a bit more about that and about not just the benefits of bringing food into the sort of orbit of the community, but also specifically to do with the, the landscape and the reversal of the trends that you've talked about in terms of sort of destruction of the environment? The best example people will think of is the bee. You know, everyone um, is aware that, you know, if we lose the bees, we lose the pollination. Um, so they're, they're, shall we say, our hero rock star of the, of the insect kingdom. But it is, again, a whole ecosystem. Um, you know, one thing we haven't touched on, which again, I'm going to use site as a, an example of how, how damaged our ecosystem is. And that is the water cycle. I mean, again, people talk about climate change. What we actually perceive as climate change in our environment, both here and in Africa and in, in the drier parts is not so much climate change it's man's decision making and the way we're managing um, the lands so you just take for example the big savannas in Africa and America you go back to when they went uh, into the into the Americas and they utterly annihilated the bison well at the time the prairies had topsoil that could have been six or ten foot deep Yet within generations, the bison had gone, they were ploughing for corn, and there's the great dust bowl where they lost their fertility. You know, the bison for millennia would have been slowly moving around the prairies, surrounded by wolves, and the 
that apex predator, the wolf, keeping the bison moving was the key to the depth and the regeneration of, or the generation, not regeneration, but the generation of the depth of topsoil and the health of the entire ecosystem. So that is, is shared as just an example. There are many other methods. Um, I, I don't consider myself a gardener, but I do highly respect permaculture. Permaculture and the, the methodology of holistic management that is that mimicking, should we say, of the big herds. Um, so you've got the livestock on one side, mimicking nature through holistic management and plant grazing and more, more well-known in this country as mob grazing. And then, of course, you have the permaculture side of things where you have a lot more vegetable grown and food forests. Uh, another aspect is syntropic farming and agroforestry, as it's better known here. So we're bringing back a more natural way of having trees and animals and plants and the diversity of that alone weaves together an, in, in, an infrastructure for more bugs and the creepy crawlies and the little animals. Um, just something as simple as putting hedgerows back creates wildlife corridors. That brings biodiversity back. So there are a plethora of little things that can go on. But when, again, you go around this country and you see huge swathes of land in monoculture, that's where all the biodiversity has been lost, all the way from us, the farmers and the producers. And that's why we need a lot more little, little people, in inverted commas, the mm. people that want to get out there, perhaps with their small market gardens, more importantly, on, on farms like my own or Tom's, where we do something called vertical integration of um, products. So, for example, um, we've got cattle, and I would absolutely adore to find someone that would love um, a chicken or duck-based business um, that would actually move their, their poultry behind our cows. That's a phenomenal way to add a second keystone species. We've also found that when we mix the sheep and the chicken, uh, sheep and the goats with the cattle, for example, it again benefits the soil and the biodiversity there. Um, we have had pigs in the mix, again, a phenomenal keystone species. So when we look at animals, not so much as an eating, you know, a food source, we can look at them as a tool to regenerate the, light, the, the land again, because they are a part of the biodiversity that we miss. You know, I was, uh, I was somewhere the other day and I've said we cannot rewild this country. There are far too many humans with far too much human infrastructure, infrastructure to ever consider truly rewilding. You know, we have been without bears and wolves in this country for 800 years. We've lost a vast amount of the trees. You know, it's just simply not possible. But we can do our best to mimic the way nature does things and slowly undo the damage that we've done. But it starts with us and every decision we make where we must stop making decisions for purely financial gain. I also, um, just to come back to what you asked about, the, you know, with the farmers, uh, in my relatively short experience uh, of 
talking to farmers and knowing farmers and where I live, um, we're surrounded by lots of farming. Um, they're not happy. The vast majority of farmers, even if they are taking the easy route, they are noting the uh, degeneration of their farms. Um, and they are, uh, uh, the older farmers are frequently really just, for those that survive, because many of them don't, many of them are taking their lives, um, which is a really hard fact that our farmers are in such a poor way that that's an option. Um, or they feel that's the only option, rather. And that their families are not benefiting from the longevity of the farm that it used to be, the generational farming. Um, I've spoken to a number of older farmers who are absolutely distraught about the non-legacy for their, for their, their children and their, their, their families because of the destruction of farming and the fact that it has been now taken over pretty much um, in the way, in their decision-making. Farmers not able to do what they want, and it's getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So maybe there are right now still quite a considerable number of farmers that are going along the, um, the route that has been followed in recent times, but many of them are finding it's not easy. It's not as easy as the comfort. And, uh, and it's affecting their, their, not only just their livelihood, it's affecting their families and their health themselves. So, yeah. You paint a very, very detailed picture of the current situation and how we've arrived at it. But you obviously have a, a clear vision of how we get out of it, how we improve the situation for all parties. And for that to prevail, it needs to be regarded as something that will be maintained in future, which of course will fall to today's children to manage in time to come. The prevailing narrative in schools is such that you can't really avoid being bashed over the head by the climate change narrative, you know, incessantly and, and all sorts of other things that don't, as far as I understand, really touch on any of the things that you've dealt with in this the course of our discussion how do you imagine that the you know the education of the younger generations can be dealt with i mean do you engage with younger people sort of as a matter of course yet or is that something in the pipeline and what do you think about that 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 side of it okay it's something i haven't dealt in this iteration yet um and i say yet because the as we said earlier, we're still putting the infrastructure in. However, it is one of our medium-term goals, should we say, both in schools and we need to stimulate an environment by us buying, by our understanding, to, to raise young new farmers up to be the heroes of tomorrow. Because whilst people talk about sustainability, and in fact I recall um, a discussion with Patrick Holden of the Sustainable Food Trust. And I said, Patrick, you know, what's the point of being sustainable when we're still on, on a degenerative tra trajectory? And he said, but people don't understand regeneration. Now, that was seven or eight years ago. And people are starting to understand regeneration. However, I would put a big caveat in that. 
it is hijacked already. The word regenerative farming is already hijacked by monocultures. So when I talk about regenerative farming, I'm talking with re genuine regenerative farming. So to go back to your point, it is, it is getting to educate at a school level. And we have some ideas for that, but our focus for now is getting the, the relationships between people that want to buy the food to be the true groundswell of community for the new farmers. Because until we do that, we're going to stall out. We're going to be reliant on the current food, ch food chains because that's ultimately what we have to do. We have to break those chains and build a regenerative food network, which is our ultimate goal, to do that and make that possible. But may I just say that the fact that this is community and it's about people getting together, there is an element of that that happens quite naturally because a lot of us have children or have or around children. Um, a lot of the families, the, those that buy the food, have children and they're getting more and more interested in the food. Here we have an allotment space and what we're also doing is um, we frequently have uh, the young young children, or say young children, we're inviting people in to get involved and that happens very naturally. So I think when the food and when this becomes when it's coming from a community, when it's coming from something that's more heartfelt and about supporting each other, the children do get more involved than it might appear. And those seeds of, literally, those seeds of change for, for them, looking at and, and seeing different food that they perhaps not seen through the supermarkets, the, the way they taste, they taste so completely different. Um, and being in an environment where we're encouraging each other to share ideas of food, um, sourcing different food, finding things um, and, and understanding the farmers, you know, actually coming and meeting some of the farmers. And so I know it's only small scale. And as Marion has said, it's not where our focus is right now at this stage, but it is absolutely uh, part of who we are, what we are, and going forward. It really is wonderful to hear. And I think that's a very positive note to sort of begin to draw to a conclusion on. What I must ask you, because I know that people watching and listening will be desperate to find out, how can we find out more about what you're doing? What can we look up? Where can we find you? How can people get in touch? Please tell us what we can do. Okay, so I put together not being a, a technical person at all, I put together little more than a holding page um, for a URL that is food4change.uk. So that takes you to a single page. On there, there is a link to a Telegram channel, and there is also a telephone number and an email. The channel can link you to um, area Food for Change groups, some of which are ordering um, they don't, what, what we do, because all of the hubs at present are at people's houses and you have to come in and join a Telegram group and then find out about the ordering system from there because it's down to each hub host. Um, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, this is about relationship. People can't just order and turn up. 
you have to be known to the group. You have to say, hi, can I order? Um, until we get the other new systems in place. Yes, it's, it's very simple at the moment. Um, and it is evolving very, very quickly. But what we don't want to do is to throw this out and get a huge influx, which we know there are people jumping at the bit to get involved with um, with us and with what we're doing. Um, but we don't want to let anyone down. Yeah. We are very, very, very focused right now on bringing everything together in a manner. So what we would ask is please do get in touch. Please use the email. But please recognize that at this stage, we, we would love to hear from you. If you can get involved and help, fantastic. If you just want to, I say just, if you want to get involved in terms of ordering, fantastic. But just bear with us while we consolidate what we've got. And then we will most definitely be um, shouting about it. I'd encourage anybody who's found this discussion interesting and energizing to share it across the various platforms. And also, please continue to support UK Column, consider a, a subscription, uh, because that's what enables us to put out interviews such as this. So thank you very much for listening. And most importantly, to Marianne and Michelle, thank you very much indeed for joining me in what I think has been a completely fascinating and really enlightening discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Thank you.